Good morning. Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, I'm Jeff Carpenter. I'm the presiding judge for this panel today. Uh, I want to recognize our... Uh, what's your title, Richard? <laughs> Deputy Marshal. Uh, Richard Rumillard and uh, Eddie Saunders is here at, serving as our clerk today. We appreciate you guys being here and doing what you do and doing it so well. Uh, to my right is Judge Fred Gore. And to my left is Judge Julie Flood. We will be your panel. There's one case on for hearing today, and that is State versus Ernell, Court of Appeals case number 23498. And we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the court, I have reserved five minutes of my time. I am Sarah Holliday here on behalf of the defendant appellant, Ibrahim Ernell. This court's resolution of the case should be relatively straightforward. Ms. James's statements to Officer Hansford were inadmissible under Davis versus Washington, and Mrs. Davis's, Mrs. James's statements to Ms. Ramin were inadmissible under Melendez-Diaz versus Massachusetts. The Confrontation Clause provides that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. But in this case, Mr. Ernell was denied that right, not because the witness was unavailable, but because the state simply elected not to call her. Counsel, how does it play out in that scenario as it, it is a little different from cr normal criminal prosecution? How is it not, um, or how does it play out that the witness is available and available for the defendant to call in their case in chief? How does that play as a factor in the analysis? Yes, Your Honor. This, uh, this actually came up in Melendez-Diaz. Uh, in that case, the testifying witness was an analyst and there was no showing that he was unavailable. He was just simply not present. They called someone else to replace him. And uh, what the Supreme Court said about that was that <clears throat> the Sixth Amendment contains both um, the right to confrontation and the defendant's right to compulsory process. Uh, the first is mandatory, requiring the state to present the witnesses against the defendant. Uh, the second is permissive, allowing the defendant to call the witnesses in his favor. Mm -hmm. But there is no burden on the defendant to call the witnesses against him. Uh, and therefore, well, the fact that... Obviously not to, you know, against himself, but obviously to challenge and to, you know, challenge any presented evidence. Obviously, it would be um, right for the defendant to be able to call the witness and if, if perceived the counsel could have asked for them to be deemed hostile from the very beginning to then start off with leading, which is allowed within the procedure. So why not that procedure? And obviously, I completely understand and agree with you on the context of calling witnesses against him, but to challenge what was in the record during the state's case in chief. Why, why wasn't that available? Well, I just don't think it was a defendant's burden, Your Honor. I don't think it was. Not, not a burden, but an opportunity, correct? To refute or to create exculpatory fact pattern, correct? Arguably, but I, but I again believe this was resolved in Melendez-Diaz in the opposite. And how so? What would that one now for? How did they resolve it? In the opposite. Uh, they they resolved it by saying even though the defendant in that case could arguably have called the analyst, he wasn't obligated to do so. The burden remained on the state. Understood. And so that says that the defendant is not obligated, but however, that opportunity is still there, correct? Certainly, one could call you know an adverse witness, but specifically the right is to cross-examination, mm -hmm. and specifically the burden is on the state in all of the court's precedent. Not talking about the state's burden, I'm talking about the opportunity for the defendant to refute what was in the record. So how does that play into the analysis? Because that, uh, that discussion is not really in Melendez-Diaz, correct? I, I think the court disposed of it so quickly because it wasn't much of a question, Your Honor. <laughs> well, that's the question I'm asking you today. But I, I'm asking you to address that question that was not addressed. I'm not, I'm not certain what you want me to say beyond that this has already been decided the other way by the U.S. Well, Supreme Court. Well, I'm asking you to address it from the context of how could the defendant use that in their favor? The defendant's not required to present any evidence at all, Your Honor, and no, he didn't do so in this case. They're not, but I'm asking you how could the defendant, how, how could it be to the defendant's favor to do so? It could, but that's a strategic decision that, that he and his trial attorney 
could have made, the reasons why they did or didn't are not in the record before us. So you're not seeing any way that this could be argued that it could be in the defendant's favor to challenge or create it. So, so you don't see any opportunity at all for this to be in the defendant's favor. And I'm just asking you, is that your, your stance on it? I, I don't, I, I, maybe I don't understand the question. Is, is, is your question whether it possibly could have been advantageous to Mr. Ernell to call Ms. James as a witness? That's what I'm asking. It's possible, but okay. we don't have any of that in the record. Okay, and ultimately, yes, it's not in the record, but are there any facts that could have cut in his favor to do so? We do have the facts in the record, correct? Sure, but, but the substance of what she would have said if she'd been called is not in the record, so we just don't know whether it would have been advantageous to him or not. But we do have what was said, was allegedly said by her in the record, correct? That's in the record, yes. Okay, and if, if you choose not to use that, then, okay, we, we can move on. Okay. Um, so, because the critical witness against Mr. Ernell did not testify, the state instead chose to bring in her testimonial statements through both a police officer and a forensic examiner, and because this is clearly contrary to precedent, Mr. Ernell's convictions uh, must be reversed. Beginning with Officer Hansford, who was the officer who uh, met Ms. James there at the scene, uh, the state doesn't disagree that Ms. James's statements to Officer Hansford are hearsay. Under Crawford, uh, the question becomes then whether those statements were testimonial or not. Uh, if the statements were not testimonial, then it's plausible that under a hearsay exception, they might have been admissible. However, if the statements were testimonial, then both cross-examination uh, or prior opportunity to cross-examine and unavailability were required. So we know that the, uh, in general, statements to police officers are considered testimonial, the exception to that being if there's an ongoing emergency. The two factors that, uh, the two general categories that the court considers in deciding whether there's an ongoing emergency are whether the incident that the police were responding to has resolved and whether the defendant poses any ongoing risk. Uh, and I think Davis versus Washington is illustrative of how the court should resolve this issue. Um, Davis is actually two cases combined for decision, the second being Hammond versus Indiana, which is directly on point with the facts of this case. Both involve a domestic incident uh, in which the police responded and then separated the couple, asked the woman what happened, and later admitted her statement at trial against the defendant without calling her as a witness. And the Supreme Court said that was a clear confrontation clause violation. There are facts present in Hammond that are also present in this case, which the court emphasized in reaching that conclusion, that the assault was no longer occurring, the defendant was no longer a danger to the victim because they'd been separated. Uh, the officer asked the wife about past events, and her response contained statements that one would normally accept, uh, expect to hear from a witness on direct examination. And in this case, when Officer Hansford arrived, the two had already been separated. Officer Hansford then moved Miss James to a separate location um, and said, you know, uh, we know that they both regarded the incident to be over at that point because Officer Hansford says to Miss James, it's okay, you're okay, it's over. And then Officer Hansford proceeded to ask Ms. James questions about things that occurred in the past. Did he have his hands around your neck? Has he hurt you before? <clears throat> Mr. Ernell was clearly not a threat at this point as he had been handcuffed, tased, he was unarmed and surrounded by multiple officers. And so it's clear under Hammond that Ms. James's statements in response to this were inadmissible unless she was unavailable and Mr. Ernell had had a prior opportunity to cross-examine her and there's no argument in this case that either of those things is true and therefore Mr. Ernell should receive a new trial. The second witness to consider is Alyssa Romine, who is the nurse examiner uh, that Ms. James speaks to when she gets to the hospital later that night. Counsel, let me ask this. As it pertains to her statements, uh, so uh, for argument's sake, if, if they are deemed to be testimonial, <clears throat> is there still other evidence that the state put on as it pertains to the facts of what happened during the altercation? Sure, the, uh, the only other witness called at trial was Officer Walker, who's the first officer to respond to the scene. Uh, he happens to be working uh, his second job at, the park, uh, at a business there in the parking lot, and so he, he hears the confrontation, he hears there's some yelling, um, he sees uh, Miss James standing outside the car, sees her throw something. <clears throat> she screams and he kind of loses sight of her as he's headed over there, and when, when he gets over there, he sees um, she and Mr. Ronell are both on the ground, and he's on top of her. But 
He can't see Mr. Ernell's hands. He doesn't see Mr. Ernell strike her. He doesn't see Mr. Ernell strangle her. So uh, there's not conclusive evidence, in my opinion, um, to survive a motion to dismiss for either assault or assault by strangulation based on that evidence. But that and that evidence or in testimony is not challenged on the appeal, correct? Correct. Counselor, um, in your brief, you use some very calm words about what the victim was um, stating mm -hmm. to the officer, to Officer Hanford. The officer spoke to the officer. Mm -hmm. um, she told Hanford. Mm -hmm. In the state's brief, certainly there seems to be more emergency, more urgency in terms of a panic-stricken type mm -hmm. of response, and there's a lot of description of that. Mm -hmm. um, what do you make of that in terms of any type of weighing that we need to do in terms of what was said? So even though they may be removed to a bus <coughs> stop, could the perception of mm -hmm. the victim still be such that there was an urgency and excitement there? Sure. Um, I think that's relevant uh, to, the, to the hearsay question, whether the statements were hearsay, that would certainly go to whether it was an excited utterance. Um, but uh, because this was a testimonial statement, hearsay is not the only question. The confrontation piece also comes in. Um, and under these circumstances, I don't think that the, uh, given, you know, certainly the victim was upset. Certainly you, you can see in the video, um, you know, that, you know, she's not in a calm state of mind uh, when her conversation with Officer Hansford begins. I think as, as time goes on, she does begin to calm down, but uh, I don't think any of that is relevant to the confrontation question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, going back to Nurse Ramin, uh, the state agrees again that this is hearsay evidence, uh, but says that it's admissible for purposes of medical treatment. However, the medical treatment exception has two requirements, neither of which is present here. The first is that the declarant intended her statement to result in medical treatment. And in this case, we know that prior to beginning the interview with Ms. Ramin, Ms. James signed a release which said that the purpose of that interview was to collect evidence for a possible criminal investigation. It also said that the results would be used in court and it said that medical treatment was still available if she re refused to participate in the interview, all of which makes clear that the interview itself was not medical treatment. Is it possible that it was a dual purpose, medical treatment and investigative? Based on the record here, I would say no. That going into the second prong, whether the statements were pertinent to medical treatment. How do you square that position with medical assistance is still available even if you choose not to participate? Medical assistance is still available from someone else. Um, but it is, it is not available for Ms. Ramin. She's not there in her capacity as, uh, as a regular nurse. She's there in her capacity as a forensic examiner. And, and we can tell uh, from the record that, that Ms. James arrived at the hospital about an hour before this interview starts. She sees four nurses, a doctor, a radiology technician, all of whom presumably asked all the questions that were necessary to her medical treatment. Uh, and they did indeed begin to provide that treatment for her. Um, Nurse Ramin did not provide a diagnosis. She didn't provide any recommendations for medication or follow-up care. Um, nothing about this conversation is medical. Everything about this conversation is, uh, is forensic. Uh, given that, that Ms. James had already been treated in the hospital, it's just not reasonable to assume that this later conversation, which also happened to occur in a hospital, was her seeking medical treatment. Uh, Nurse Ramin herself said that her job was to collect evidence and document injuries, not to treat them. And we know that all the evidence uh, Ms. Ramin ultimately collected was put in a locked cabinet uh, that medical staff could not access to aid in, in Ms. James's treatment. And so for all the same reasons, this is also a confrontation clause violation. Um, medical records are ordinarily not testimonial. But Melendez-Diaz tells us that they can be under uh, two circumstances. One, if they're specifically generated for use at trial, which we know these were, and second, if the declarant anticipated their use at trial, which per the release, Ms. James certainly did. Uh, I would say a statement is also testimonial if it speaks directly to a facted issue in the same way that one could expect the witness to do if she were called to testify on direct examination. And 
Ms. James's statements certainly were that. Um, I think it's also important to note that when, when Ms. James was initially offered, uh, when the medic asked her, do you want to go to the hospital, she said no. Uh, she didn't require medical care beyond having some, you know, antiseptic wiped on her face by the, the EMT there at the scene. But Officer Hansford wanted her transported so that they could take pictures and collect the exact evidence that came in at trial against Mr. Ernell. I guess, counsel, on that issue, couldn't that have been done at the scene by law enforcement? It could have been, but it wasn't. <clears throat> so, I guess, are you speculating that that's why an officer wanted to, or are you... No, it's on Officer Hansford's body camera that after she finishes talking to Ms. James, she goes over to her sergeant and says, sir, she doesn't want to go to the hospital, but we need pictures. Okay. So I'm, just, I'm just trying to understand I'm, I'm <clears throat> the, the location mm -hmm. wouldn't change the testimonial legal determination. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to understand the, the delineation between it being done at the hospital versus mm -hmm. You know, at the scene right. wouldn't have changed the location wouldn't have changed whether it was testimonial or not if, if that's what you're arguing well it, one I should I should note one thing that's important to know about the photographs um, some of them are of Miss James's face which anyone who saw her at the scene could testify to what her face looked like um, but uh, some of the photographs are also Miss um, James demonstrating on a mannequin how she was strangled and those photographs in particular are testimonial because they're showing exactly what happened uh, you know, during the alleged assault in, in a way that she could have been expected to do had she testified at trial. So I guess it, it, that's all of her statements and actions, obviously, but how would that impact the determination on the nurse? Because the nurse's statements, because she was available, she did testify, all of her statements would be able to come in, excluding her saying what Miss James said, correct? Well, people who, who treated Miss James at the hospital could testify about what they observed, certainly, but the vast majority of Ms. Ramin's testimony was directly repeating back statements that Ms. James had made to her. But everything else that she observed and her expert analysis is not being challenged, correct? Um, I mean, I, I have... She did testify and... She did. I mean, I have some questions about whether any of what uh, Ms. Ramin did was admissible because it was clearly not for medical purposes. Uh, I think you could call the nurse from the ER to testify to what she saw and what she did, but I think that so Ms. Ramin didn't provide any treatment and that wasn't her purpose. But so I guess her, her conduct and her observations would still be come in as an expert. She was deemed an expert, correct? She was qualified as an expert, yes. So, and that hasn't been her expert status and none of that was mm -hmm. challenged on appeal, correct? That's right. And so obviously any of her observations and conclusions, mm -hmm. those would come in under that, is, that status as an expert witness, correct? Yeah, her, her opinion that uh, Ms. James's injuries were consistent with strangulation could come in. Uh, all of the evidence, but I, but I would emphasize that that opinion was based on what Ms. James told her about what happened. It, it's not what you get with a, a forensic analyst where it's a completely independ independent opinion um, you know, that, that has nothing to do with, this comes up in, in Ortiz's ape where, um, you know, her opinion is not based on something that has been produced by a machine. It's based on the statements from uh, from Miss James, and I, I don't know that there's a good way to disentangle the two. Do we have a case on point dis distinguishing between mm -hmm. the two of those? Um, I mean, I'm not aware of one. You, no, you're correct. There's there's not a case on point. The 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 state supreme court did have some some language in Ortiz Ape about distinguishing between an opinion based on a person statement and an opinion based on a computerized result, but I'm not aware of a case that directly addresses that. Um, so again, Ms. Romine's, uh, both Ms. Romine's testimony and all of the evidence she generated, I would argue are inadmissible hearsay and in violation of the confrontation clause, and therefore Mr. Ernell should receive a new trial. I'll speak quickly to prejudice. It's the same for both Ms. Hansford and Ms. Romine. Um, Ms. James's statements were the only direct evidence of what happened, uh, as, as we've discussed. Uh, Ms. James's statements were relied on time and time again in the state's closing argument. Uh, the prosecutor argued to the jury that, you've heard Laura's own words, she told you exactly what happened. She asked them to believe Laura, even though Laura hadn't testified, and cross-examination is what we are talking about today. 
Third, we know that uh, this evidence was relied upon by the jury because they asked to see the video, they asked to see the report, they asked to see the photographs. They also asked to be re-instructed on how to consider all of that evidence. Fourth, we know that juries are generally likely to find the testimony of sworn law enforcement officers and experts who have been, uh, or witnesses who have been certified as experts to be credible. And fourth, we know that even when all this evidence came in, the jury still deadlocked seven to four to one on one of the charges and had to be re-instructed on reasonable doubt before they could reach a conclusion. And I'm not sure there could be stronger evidence that, uh, that the error in this case can't possibly be found harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. I will speak quickly to Harbison. You don't need to reach that issue uh, if you decide for us on either of the first two. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the essential law of State versus Harbison is that a defense attorney can't concede guilt without her client's consent. And there's no evidence in this case that Mr. Ernell gave knowing and voluntary consent for counsel to concede anything. Mr. Ernell was charged with both assault on a female and assault by strangulation. And in the course of her closing argument, his attorney made repeated references to Mr. Ernell, uh, evidence that Mr. Ernell struck the victim um, in an attempt to argue that that didn't amount to strangulation, but unfortunately it was also a concession of assault on a female. She said, what did the responding officer witness? An assault on a female. But it doesn't even come close to assault by strangulation. She referred to what she called a, a fight between her client and Ms. James. She said she hit him too. Uh, and then finally, at, at the conclusion of her argument, counsel asked uh, the jury to acquit Mr. Ernell of assault by strangulation, but did not make a similar request as to assault by a female. And under both McAllister and Hester, I think the, the only possible result here is to remand for an evidentiary hearing in a superior court to determine whether there was consent to make those concessions, assuming Mr. Ernell does not otherwise receive a new trial. Counsel, does explain your <clears throat> understanding of how the trial court's arresting judgment on the assault on the female affects that, uh, that claim? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> excuse me. My understanding of, of the cases subsequent to Harbison um, uh, suggests that it, it's not only the offense that is conceded that's important. Uh, you know, when, um, when defense counsel uh, does anything to cast doubt on the defendant's complete innocence of all charges, uh, they, have, they have failed in their duty in a way that our courts recognize is per se prejudicial. But does it, does it the arresting judgment render the effect uh, of that conviction moot? It, it renders the effect of the assault on a female conviction moot, but it doesn't render moot the fact that Mr. Ernell's own attorney told the jury that he was guilty of an offense when he had entered a plea of not guilty. So since there's not any exposure to that conviction, what is the harm to the client that would require a new evidentiary hearing? Oh, well. Because the judgment was arrested on the assault on the female, and so there's no exposure to any criminal liability. Yes, but, but if, if the Harbison claim were to pan out, he would also receive a new trial on the assault by strangulation. And he, he has been convicted and sentenced of that. Even though there was a request for a not guilty return, so, it, so the claim for the ineffective would just be on the assault on the female because there was a request for a not guilty on the strangulation, correct? There was a request for that, but my understanding of the precedent is that, that if, regardless of what ends up happening um, with the jury at the end of the day, if, if there's a Harbison violation during closing argument, it's a new trial on all charges, not just the one that was conceded. What case do you cite to, for that basis? Well, I, I'm afraid I didn't uh, do too much harvesting research in preparation for this argument. Okay. Um, so I, I'll have to rely on the briefs for that. Okay. All right, if there's nothing further, I'll reserve the remainder. Thank you. You're from the Pelly. Good afternoon. May, may it please the court, judges of the North Carolina Court of Appeals. My name is uh, Assistant Attorney General Yvonne Walker, and I represent the state, the appellee in this matter. We are here today because, in this case, the defendant was charged and convicted of assault 
on a female and an assault by strangulation. I will kind of go to, directly to the, the issue of, yes, Mr. Uh, James, the victim in the case, did not testify, but the state proceeded because they had, based on what we have in the record, very strong and clear and convincing evidence independent of the statement, out-of-court statements of Ms. James of the uh, guilt of the defendant in this case. First, the, the trial court did not err in admitting the testimony of Officer Hansford and the body cam video because it clearly falls within the uh, excited utterance exception. And also as, in terms of the uh, testimony of Nurse Romaine, the out-of-court statements of, uh, and the, the exam, the out-of-court statements would fall under the uh, admissible, admissible hearsay because it's basically treatment and diagnosis exception. And, and we also, as I go through the argument, arguably there, if, for the hearsay issue, if you were to find uh, that there was inadmissible hearsay, that would be a prejudice uh, standard of review. And if you were to deal with the issue of the confrontation clause, that would be um, a error, harmless, we'd have to see that we'd have error be, uh, harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. I will, seems in terms of these, um, the excited utterance, we didn't have a, a lot of questions in areas, so I think we'll directly get to the issue of the confrontation clause for both um, the officer Hansford and for the nurse. Well, I guess I could, the question that I would have in dealing with the testimonial versus non, how do we look at, before we get to the confrontation issue, as far as the facts surrounding the timing of the question, questioning, um, of the victim, how do you balance the fact that the defendant was already in handcuffs um, in context to our Supreme Court cases and there not being an ongoing emergency in, in comparison to some of the other cases out there? That he's already in handcuffs, um, there's not an immediate threat to the victim still ongoing. How does that fact, uh, how do you address that factor in, in your determination arguing testimonial versus non-testimonial? What I'm saying, and this one, this presents the unique idea that this is kind of an ongoing emergency. Unlike a lot of the cases that decide that there is not an emergency, in this case, we have the unique circumstance that the officer is coming upon an actual assault in progress. Literally, Officer Walker hears the yelling and the screaming. He goes to the car. He sees the victim under, Miss James under Mr. Ernell. And, and, and I don't mean to cut you off, but let me, I guess, let me go ahead and speed for it. The, the interaction at the bus shelter, address that conversation and that part of the video that came in because at that point, it looks like in the record, the defendant was already in handcuffs and secure. So not disagreeing with your argument when he come up to the car, everything he heard because it was ongoing, but once the defendant was secure, he was in handcuffs and they have moved over to the bus shelter, um, how does the defendant being in secure custody at that point play into your argument of testimonial versus non-testimonial? Well, I would argue that in this case it's still non-testimonial because at the time that Ms. Hansford comes on the scene, literally if you am looking at both combinations of video and I would encourage to look at both the exhibit, State's Exhibit 1, Officer Walker, and State's Exhibit 2, Officer Hansford. At the time that Officer Hansford comes onto the scene, the videos kind of overlap a bit. You can still hear, and in her testimony directly, that she comes on a scene in which they're still trying to secure the scene and secure uh, Mr. Ernell. He's still yelling, he's being very aggressive. He hasn't actually been cuffed and secured at the time that Ms. Hansford first comes on the scene. In fact, in her testimony, she reflects, I've come on this scene, we are actively trying to get the situation under control uh, Officer Walker asked me to speak to the victim. So I would say in this case, it's an ongoing emergency. And one of the issues as related to the emergency, it's not narrowly focused just on what's going on with the victim. You also must consider the, um, what would happen in terms of the first, the responders to the scene and the general public. So in this case, when he comes on the scene, they are struggling. He, Officer Walker uh, testifies that there's a throwing of the keys so in this case, they're not really sure exactly whether he has a weapon or not, what may be on his person. So they have to not only 
separate the victim and the assailant, but there is also the responsibility of making sure that the law enforcement are protected and the public in general. So I believe there are a line of cases, and Bryant makes there's a suggestion that the emergency not only is limited to the consideration of the safety of the victim, but also to the first responders and to the public in general. So, and as I can say, and one of the things you can see in this video is we say in terms of the situation itself, she is very visibly distraught. She has very fresh wounds on her face. She has scarring. She's grabbing at her neck. She's kind of out of breath. So that in this case, even as she's moved away, he's still yelling. He's still struggling in the background. They don't have him cuffed. They have not put him in the, you know, the car to take him away. So you can see just the, the sheer fear in her face. So that I'd say it's a combination of not only is she not feeling totally secure at the time that she's talking to uh, Officer Hansford, but law enforcement have not com completely cleared the scene and established that they themselves and other members of the public are safe from Mr. Ernell at this point. And I will go to the issue of the confrontation calls as it relates to Nurse Romaine. Uh, this one, again, the issue is the statements come in as admissible uh, hearsay because of the medical diagnosis exception. Uh, defendant argues that uh, in her role that none of what she is doing amounts to medical care, treatment, and diagnosis. I would say in this case, if you look uh, at the record, starting in the transcript at page 425. Alyssa Romaine is a, a registered nurse. She's employed with Novent, uh, the outpatient surgery center. She's a forensic nurse examiner, again, employed with Novent. <coughs> she has uh, extensive training and um, education in that background. So at the facility, one of the reasons that she is brought in to be a part of this assessment is that she has specific training as it relates to intimate partners and strangulation. So in this case also, if specifically uh, in the transcript uh, at the uh, area, uh, page 428 at the lines 2425, she explains that within her training that, uh, that the nurses and the doctors in the emergency unit, they have you know sometimes very generalized training, but that in terms of her head to toe assessment, she can interact in ways and catch things that maybe the triage nurse or the general physician that's uh, in the ER will not be able to catch because of her particularized training. Um, so that's one of the reasons that she's called in. Uh, so in this case, given, and, if, and one of the things related to the confrontation clause, as uh, Your Honor, uh, uh, Gore brought up, anything that Nurse Romaine is observing and seeing and hearing, all that can go into her assessment and her opinion. So in this case, there are, if you just take, take out the uh, out-of-court statements that are made by Ms. James, there are significant evidence that uh, Ms. Romaine testifies to just based on her observation that uh, would be non-testimonial evidence that is not a violation of the uh, Sixth Amendment uh, rights of the uh, defendant in this case. Um, also, we will address, if you go to the transcript at page uh, 437, she, in talking with the, uh, a victim, you, she explains who she is, that she's a medical forensics examiner, she gets consent, and that there's an understanding that she is giving a medical access assessment. So there is a medical component. And again, if we just kind of even narrowly look at this about what the uh, Ms. Nurse Romaine observes, and on that same uh, 438, she observes distinctly that she was disheveled, she was damp, her clothes were wet, she was tearful, she looked raw. She had visible bruises and abrasions on her face. Uh, one of the, as uh, counsel um, indicated, that in her opinion, she felt that in seeing the, uh, I always miss this word, subcongenital hemorrhage and the petechia in, in the, this defendant, I mean, in the victim, that, that in her opinion, just on her observation of those two uh, things, that amounts to the fact that in this case, she would assess that there had been strangulation of this uh, victim in this case. So she does a head-to-toe assessment. Um, I think it's very important to, to understand that the trial court tried to walk the line that uh, Judge Carpenter mentioned 
in terms of redacting uh, what was Exhibit 3A and also striking at points some portions of the testimony of Nurse Romaine. Uh, so again, if we look at, uh, this would be um, the state's Exhibit 3A in the appellate uh, uh, record, it would be Docs Exhibit 5 through 12. It's the anatomical findings. So all those findings are based on the physical observations of Nurse Romaine. Were those, were those findings given to medical staff or just to law enforcement? Now, if we look at the end, it does indicate that the findings were given to, the, to law enforcement. But I would say in this case, because this, she has a particularized training, it is very well possible that she would have been able to ascertain something different that in this case the triage nurse or the doctor wouldn't have picked up. Now, I will say that in this case, it doesn't appear that there was any additional testing uh, that occurred after, but that should not, in this case, render her assessment non-medical, just because in this fact, maybe there were not uh, additional testing. But it's important that she does this testing because there is the possibility that she could have discovered something that the triage nurse or the uh, ER physician missed. And again, she's, again, the things in terms of the pictures, she's seeing and, and she also, in her testimony, makes an assessment that just based on take the statements out, that in terms of the swelling to her eyes, the abrasion to her face, the <coughs> sub to genital hemorrhage, the petechiae in her face, all those do part, uh, lead to her assessment that, in this case, there was strangulation. I know that defense counsel argues it's hard to separate out the two, but there are times throughout her testimony in which when she is asked just about her observations, just about the physical things that you can see about the defendant, about how she looked disheveled, how she was uh, uh, acting, that those things were a part of her opinion that there had been an assault and there had been strangulation in this case. So even independent of any statements that were made by the victim, she came to these conclusions that there had been strangulation um, and that clearly she had uh, you know, bruising, uh, visible signs of strangulation, bruising, uh, very fresh wounds and scars. Uh, and that would also apply to uh, the Hansford testimony too. Again, when you look at the video, it is very clear from the moment that um, she is kind of moved away, moved away and is at the bus stop and she's looking directly on camera you can see very visible fresh scarring. She's jittery, she's crying, she's grabbing at her neck. So these are all observations that, with, in terms of the confrontation clause, they are non-testimonial. Thus, there would not be any reason to um, have violated the defendant's rights in this case. And I would like to, so this kind of addresses one point I've had from my notes. In terms of what uh, testimony and evidence that you have uh, that is not that has not been objected to, that is not subject to what we are here for today, um, there is something beyond just the testimony and observations of Officer Walker. Clearly, the other uh, two persons, uh, Officer Hansford, she gets the benefit of what she observes, what she sees, what she, what she is seeing in the moment. Uh, and that this situation is emerging and she's trying to help and calm the, the victim in this case. It's very close in time in terms of the examination by Nurse Romine. So it's done in a hospital setting. It lends itself to the, to the idea that this uh, has some certainty that um, the victim is not necessarily um, giving false information. You can't um, change the, the issue of the fact that these are observational points in terms of the way she presented at the time. The cases that I cited to in my brief, while not directly related in terms of um, that, the ZAP case talking about data, but it references the fact that if you are, the basic issue is if you have the expert giving their opinion, not based solely on the out-of-court statement or, or something that would clearly be considered uh, uh, not, uh, testimonial, then their uh, their opinion should come in and how that and in terms of the issue about cross-examination it's the experts opinion that gets to be cross-examined so in this case if the defendant had um, and he and he did uh, cross-examine the nurse about her opinion 
so that the jury would get to hear if there's any kind of differing uh, argument or opinion about the nurse's opinion independent of the out-of-court statements just based on her observations of the physical condition of um, the victim in this case. And one of the, just didn't want to gloss over it too uh, quickly, but in terms of the two, two standards for the uh, issue of looking at this, whether it was inadmissible hearsay. Again, we feel that this clearly falls within the idea of the excited utterance for the, um, for the responding officer Hansford and the medical exception for Nurse Romine. But if you were to uh, find that they are in fact are inadmissible hearsay, we argue that there is no prejudicial error. Because given this situation, the uniqueness of law enforcement being right there when this is going on, it's a reasonable inference for the jury to assess that this uh, particular young woman has been attacked, has been strangled, has been injured, and the only other person that's in the vicinity at the time that's tased to get off of her is the defendant. So that there is evidence independent of Mrs. James, of Ms. James out of court statements that are very logical and very reasonable for a jury to assess that in fact he committed the crime of assault on a female and strangulation. Um, and I've, we've, I kind of started out uh, going with the idea of why there is no confrontation clause issue with either uh, Hansford or Romaine. So I will, there is the uh, last issue. Uh, of the uh, whether or not Harbison is uh, relevant to getting a new trial because the argument that is made um, in, in, in essence in the closing argument counsel for a defendant pretty much either uh, impliedly or openly just uh, admitted the guilt of her client to the assault on a female. I would argue in this case that you would need to actually look at and read the entire closing argument. Um, I will highlight in a, a few places where it's not a clear-cut case where there, um, that there is any kind of implied or direct concession. Um, if we look at the transcript uh, at page 532, I kind of highlighted uh, lines 7 through 19, the defense counsel brings up the issue of reasonable doubt. It brings up the issue of, you know, what you know, what could have happened to her prior to coming to the facility? Are there no pictures? You know, what could have happened to her? He's not making that narrowly tailored just to the argument about strangulation. It could apply clearly to, to both what happened to her in terms of any kind of assault and strangulation. Um, and on page 533 in the closing, again, he brings up the idea that there are things that you have to consider. Uh, what did the, what was witnessed? an assault on a female. Again, that to me, read that for the record, it would read in a whole sense that he is questioning whether or not there is an assault on the female. On page 535 of his closing, uh, looking at lines 18 through 19, he again reminds that Mr. Ornell has no burden of proof in this case. He is presumed to be innocent. He's not limiting that to a, uh, to a strangulation. He's just uh, giving a blanket, he's presumed to be innocent. Um, when you go into, and I think this is a, a very kind of critical point, on page 535 at line 24, at the end of it, he says, I will ask you to return, might be a little interesting in terms of the, the A, but, but he also, but he uses verdicts. So he says, I will ask you to return verdicts of not guilty for my client. And he again adds, because you have not heard from the witness. Uh, on that same, we move to page 536, lines 12 through 15 of the closing. He says, I think it's probably guilty of assault on a female, but I'm not fully convinced. Again, as the lines of cases that I cite to McAllister, this is, this is not a case that meets the, the, the bar of what he implies. He says it may be, but that in no way suggests that he is convincingly saying, my client is guilty of assault on a female. Here, this is just a questioning again about did the state have evidence, did they not, maybe, maybe not. That does not meet the standard of what is considered a implied concession of guilt. Uh, and by, uh, page 537 of the transcript, 
this is uh, highlighting lines 3 through 11. Again, he goes back to the idea that you have to be able to find this person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Again, he questions whether or not there's, there's guilt or innocence. To me, this is, both, again, without specifically talking about just the issue of strangulation or just the issue of um, assault on a female, he is questioning whether or not there has been sufficient evidence of guilt for his client. And finally, on page 539 of the closing, uh, highlighting uh, lines 11 through 18, again, he defines reasonable doubt as always difficult to define. You know, has the state fully met its burden on Ernell's guilt? He says no, no particular reference to either just the strangulation in this case. Um, you know, he goes again, has the state entirely convinced me based on the evidence? Again, all throughout this closing, he talks about maybe, I could be, that's, you know, what you think, what maybe, those are not definitive uh, admissions or implied admissions of your client's guilt. Um, so, I, and I argue that this case is different in terms of he's a little loose with his language, but he does not come with a uh, catch-all where he's saying, only find my client guilty of the strangulation. He constantly, throughout this closing, questions the issue of reasonable doubt to both the assault on a female and the strangulation. So I say again, uh, in reading that closing in its totality, uh, the issue of implied con uh, con uh, concessions of guilt are very narrow and very rare in the state. And I would say that this case does not meet that level of, uh, to, to be an exception to the, to the general rule in, in our state. Got a couple uh, questions for you. Um, based on your view of, we're talking about your, your argument focused a lot on hearsay exceptions. Um, would you agree that this is kind of a two-step process for the state at trial? You have to have a hearsay exception to get it to, to admissibility, and then you have the confrontation clause examination that has to take place if it's testimonial. Would you agree with that? I agree. I agree. Okay. Um, I thought that's what I heard coming through, but I wanted to verify that, that you and I had the common understanding there. In regards to uh, Nurse Romaine, uh, you told us about the special training that she had received. The special training, as pointed out by your opposing counsel, appears to have been in the forensic side and not the medical, the forensic evidence gathering side, not necessarily medical treatment side. Um, what's your position in regards to that uh, argument that although she is a nurse, she was acting as a, a gatherer of forensic evidence in regards to the testimonial nature of the, of the state. I, I would still say, holistically, she is still a nurse with the nurse training. And even when they describe this forensic nursing training, it still emphasizes elements of medical assessments, that you're going to give the person a head-to-toe assessment, that you may be able to, because of this particularized training, find something that the triage nurse and the ER physician who don't have this particularized training as it relates to uh, sexual assault or, in this case, a domestic incident regarding strangulation. So I would, you know, say that there's, I think you mentioned earlier that maybe there's kind of like a dual component to it, but it, I believe that you can't go all the way to the side of saying that this is totally just an evidence gathering, that she is giving medical treatment and care and assessment. And again, outside of this, you know, let's pull out the non, the statements that are made to her by the victim in this case, just based on her observations. Again, you know, I encourage you to, to look at uh, the video, just based on the bruising of this young woman, the jitteriness of this young woman, um, the, the, the fresh scars, the grabbing at her neck, the complaints, um, just what you can see and hear and know based on her training and that particularized training about strangulation, that supports her assessment. She's making a, a medical diagnosis or making a, a opining a conclusion that because of that subjunctable hemorrhaging and the petechia, that there has been strangulation in this case. And the, the testimony or the expert opinion is not challenged on appeal. It's the, it's the testimonial nature of the other things that 
that's being challenged as best I can tell from the, the briefs. Um, and that puts us in the position where certainly there's, there's medical aspects to it, but at the end of the day, we're back to uh, Crawford versus Washington where we have to analyze the statements that were made were under circumstances which would lead an objective witness, witness to reasonably believe the statement would be available for use at a later trial. That's, that's the standard we're, we're going to have to parse out uh, from the facts in the record in this case. I, I'd argue, like I said, this is a very unique case where it, it has a, like a dual purpose. And I believe what the, tr you know, the trial judge in this court was, was very concerned about this confrontation clause issue and took a lot of time in terms of getting um, uh, hearing cases and hearing the uh, arguments of counsel uh, pre-trial and then when there was the breaking away when the nurse was first called. And I believe you can look at what the, I'd argue the trial judge did a, a, a good job and didn't err by, okay, let's try to figure out this dividing line. So at the times that there are things that are not, that he's defining as non-testimonial, again, those observations, those things that are kind of objective uh, things that she can pull out to objectively based on how she appears, uh, which, again, because this is at a, at a hospital very soon after the incident, that those things lead to the idea that, uh, that some of these, the testimony that was allowed in, the part of the report that is, un, that is redacted that the jury could see, that, in this case, can be defined as testimonial. So that the judge walked the fine line of excluding things in terms of past history. There were a lot of things that uh, she was not allowed to testify to and portions of the report that were redacted. And I believe that's a very good dividing line to look at what comes in, in this case, I argue the record would show it's testimonial, thus not in violation of the confrontation clause. Those things that were redacted and the times that uh, her testimony was stricken in terms of uh, statements that were made to her by the victim they would be testimonial, but they did not come in uh, to the, and the jury would not have gotten the benefit of that testimony in this trial. So I would say that, you know, we can't, it, this is not one where just because that forensic uh, is put in terms of there, that she's a forensic nurse, that doesn't make everything that she was doing and capable of doing makes it all a, a law enforcement tool that she is, explains and, and is, you know, not employed by the DA's office, is not employed by some, the entity that's connected to law enforcement. She is a nurse employed by Novin and was called in because this is a case that involved a domestic incident and she had this particularized training to be able to help and elicit and be able to uh, opine on whether or not there had been strangulation in this case. Thank you, ma'am. Oh, thank you. Go to. Um, so when considering the written, written briefs and today's arguments by the parties, defendant cannot establish an error in the trial court below. Ultimately, it is reasonable to infer that the defendant assaulted and strangled Ms. James. Just if you just isolated this to purely what would be uh, non-testimonial, what these witnesses observed, looking at the video, looking at the distress she's under, that it is a reasonable inference that this young woman, when they, in this emergent situation, come upon her, the person that caused these visible injuries, that's causing this distress, that's causing this crying, that was the defendant who was tased off of her. Um, further, again, looking at, I encourage you to look at the body cam videos that were admitted as states exhibits one and two. They speak for themselves in terms of there was an assault, there was an attack in this case, Mr. Ernell is the only other person that was there within the confines of being able to do this. So the state respectfully requests that the defendant's convictions be affirmed, and I thank you for the opportunity to be heard today. Thank you, ma'am. Um, you have six minutes and 46 seconds. <clears throat> yes, sir. Uh, just briefly, um, with respect to Ms. James's observable injuries, uh, the, the simple fact that there are scratches and bruises, she's disheveled, none of that establishes how that occurred. Um, I would also say uh, it was in uh, Ms. Ramin's testimony that particular hemorrhaging that she experienced can be caused by other things. Um, it can be caused by coughing, and it's in the record that Ms. James had had a cough for several days before this occurred. 
Uh, it can also be caused by force. And uh, you'll observe that the, most of the scratching on Ms. James's face is on the right side, the same side where the hemorrhaging is, so arguably uh, those could all have been caused by the same thing and not by strangulation. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, for, for all the reasons that I stated in the reply, I, I don't find the state's arguments that Mr. Ernell had not been seized when he was uh, surrounded by officers to be persuasive. Uh, when Officer Hansford got there, Mr. Ernell was on the ground. Uh, Mr. Walker had already handcuffed him. He had already tased him. There are three other officers standing around Mr. Ernell. And the reason that Officer Hansford is referred to go and talk to Ms. James is because Mr. Ernell has already been contained by those other officers. They wouldn't have done that if they had perceived him as a risk. I would also note that when Ms. James sits down in the bus shelter, she does so with her back to Mr. Ernell, which again is not something she would have done if she was still afraid of him. Um, as I said in the reply, I, I think the, the state's reliance on Bryant is extremely misguided. Bryant actually uh, involves a completely different situation in which when officers arrived, they didn't know who the defendant was, what had happened, where he was, they only knew that they had a victim in front of them who had been shot and was bleeding out. So counsel, on, on splitting the difference of it, so <clears throat> I think looking at our case law, it's, it's fair to say that are, are you challenging any of Officer Walker's video that was admitted as he is approaching the, alter, the ongoing altercation? No, I'm not challenging Officer Walker. So we're, we're looking more at Hansford whenever they're moving across, okay? Yes. With that said, you, you argued uh, in your uh, initial um, argument when you were discussing the prejudicial issue that the only direct evidence was this, you went through it. Um, how do you address any circumstantial evidence that's in the record that's unchallenged as it pertains to be able to carry the burden for president because the term you used and I made a note was direct but circumstantial mm -hmm. evidence can come in as well to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt mm -hmm. how do you address any circumstantial evidence that's still in the record that could carry the state's burden sure uh, there is precedential uh, and I, I didn't cite it in the brief so I won't name it but there there are cases from this court about when um, you know, when, it, when a situation occurs and, you know, there are observable, well, when the police come upon a scene and, and they observe injuries, they observe, you know, a car crash, whatever it is, um, and the defendant is present, you know, it is possible to infer from that situation that the defendant is responsible, um, that who, the defendant... Who's the review, who's the ultimate decision maker whenever that circumstantial evidence comes in? But that circumstantial, it, ultimately it's, it's the jury, but the circumstantial evidence is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what the jury needs to convict. And I think particularly given that the jury was clearly so torn in this case that they were out for a full day in an assault case, that they initially deadlocked seven to four to one, um, you know, that just says how much they struggled with this and, th and that they were not clear that Mr. Ernell was in fact guilty. Um, yeah, I, we can argue about uh, excited utterance, but I think it comes down to what Judge Carpenter said, which is that even if it is admissible on that basis, it's still, we still have to survive the con confrontation analysis. And in this case, I don't think there's any way that it can. Um, touching on Nurse Ramin, Miss um, Ramin, I should say, uh, as the state indicated in their argument, uh, Ms. Ramin's day job was as a nurse at an outpatient surgery center. Obviously, Ms. James did not come to her for surgical services. Uh, Ms. Ramin also worked uh, in her forensic capacity at the hospital, but just because it was possible for her to have administered some sort of medical care doesn't mean that she did or that she intended to on this occasion. Uh, simply being a nurse doesn't make you a nurse everywhere you go all throughout your life. Um, <coughs> I would note, uh, you know, some of the things that, that Romine did in her examination, for example, the head-to-toe assessment had already been done by the medical staff, if you review, um, uh, starting at DOCX, I'm sorry, not DOCX3, DOCX38, uh, I believe, um, you'll see a similar chart showing, um, you know, various abrasions and whatnot to, uh, to Ms. James's body. All of that had been done 
independently by the medical staff, and, and Ms. Ramin did not help in that regard. Um, touching quickly on the redactions, I just, I want to, I, I appreciate that the trial court did redact some of what uh, was in the report, but the trial court also left in, I thought he was going to go for his keys, but he didn't. He came straight for me. He grabbed me by my throat and punched me and threw me to the ground, and then he put all his weight on my neck with his forearm. That's clearly a testimonial statement, uh, clearly admitted in violation of Mr. Ernell's right to cross-examine this witness. I am out of time, so I will thank you for yours, and uh, I rest on the briefs. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Case is submitted. We'll adjourn court.